You ever watched a dog show? Um, I remember one time way back in the day, my brother Mark and I, we were, we were watching TV and we must have been uber bored because we came upon, I think it was the USA Network, and they were airing the Westminster Dog Show. And for whatever reason, we watched that dude for a while. And I'm sure the dog show circuit in America is filled with lovely people, and it's a great pastime, but man, that whole thing seemed made up to us. How you can judge, like, dogs in general, but one breed of dog over against another and decide which dog is superior, the criteria just seemed made up to me. Like, I judge dogs based on, like, do they bark all the time? Do they chew stuff they shouldn't chew? Do they only use the bathroom outside, right? And I'll throw in, like, after they use the bathroom, if they don't eat it. Like, that, that's, a, that's all I need out of a dog. But this guy was talking about the German Shepherd being a little heavy-boned and the Schnauzer being nicely angular and this other dog having that characteristic sway that you look for in his breed. And I was just like, man, this is made up. This can't be real. It just seems completely arbitrary. Trust me when I say this, that introduction has something to do with today's passage. Just bear with me for a minute. Where we pick up in the Gospel of Matthew today, Jesus is inside the high priest's house, or residence, really, in Jerusalem, and he's on trial. Last week, we studied that trial. And where we are at, Jesus is the only innocent person in the story. And he's surrounded by all of these very guilty people. He's on trial in front of guilty people. We, we looked last week at what a travesty of justice his trial before the Jewish Sanhedrin was, how illegal according to their own rules it was. So, so everybody that's got him on trial is guilty. But not just them. The disciples are guilty because where are they right now in the story? They've all abandoned Jesus in his darkest hour and run away. If you look right above today's passage, if you have your Bible open to chapter 27, if you're, gonna, if you're wondering why I skipped the story of Peter and his denials of Jesus, we didn't skip that. We just took it out of order. Uh, we studied that passage when we studied Jesus predicting that Jesus would deny him. So the last thing that Matthew has said, he just told us Peter is right outside in the courtyard and he has just, with oaths and curses, declared that he never met Jesus. Oaths and curses, it's, it would have sounded something to our ears like this. I swear to God I never met that guy, Jesus. He can go to hell for all I care. Or I'll be damned if I ever met that guy. So that's what Peter is doing. So he's guilty. 
Jesus is the one innocent person surrounded by all of these people who are guilty. But in his trial, this is what we studied last week, Jesus made clear the guilty people trying him, he made sure they knew that they weren't the only judges in the room. Someday he is going to return on the clouds and judge everyone who has ever lived, right? But there's only one innocent person at that judgment, and it's Jesus. And if we read the rest of the Gospels, especially John and Luke, and we read the book of Acts, we're going to find that there are some guilty people, people who are guilty in this scene. There are some guilty people that God is going to judge to be not guilty. There are some guilty people that God is going to judge to be righteous. But there are other people in this same group that God's going to condemn. What is the criteria for that judgment? Because it can seem pretty arbitrary, like my dog show that I was talking about. Because there are certain people who are going to seem much guiltier on judgment day than other people. But some guilty people are going to be declared not guilty by God. And some guilty people are going to be declared to be guilty by God. What makes the difference? What's the criteria? Today in the beginning of chapter 27, the first 10 verses, it's a really just dark and sad passage. This is the, the story of Judas' suicide is in here. And, and the, the way Jesus and, and Judas interact with the Sanhedrin. It's a really... It's a really dark passage, and in looking at those two different kind of groups of people, they're going to be an example for us of the kind of person who can't be saved. That's what we want to talk about today. What is the kind of person who can't be saved? There's another kind of guilty person who can and will. The disciples and Peter, are they guilty as it stands where we're at in the book of Matthew right now? Are they guilty? Yes. The Sanhedrin, are they guilty? Yes. Eleven of the disciples are going to be judged as not guilty, even though we know they're guilty. Even in the Sanhedrin, though, we're going to meet a guy in a few weeks named Joseph of Arimathea. He's a voting member of the Sanhedrin. He's going to be judged someday as being not guilty. There's another member of the Sanhedrin named Nicodemus. He's guilty, but he's going to be judged as not guilty. What makes the difference? What's the kind of person who can't be saved? And the kind of person who can. I'm going to argue this morning, it's not, certainly not the size of our sin, of our guilt. We know that from, from looking at Peter. Peter's outside in the courtyard denying with curses that he knows Jesus. Remember, Jesus said this earlier in the book, whoever denies me before people, I will deny him also before my Father in heaven. Peter is absolutely that guilty. I think on purpose, Matthew tells us the story of, of Peter's denials of Jesus. 
right before he tells us the story of Judas' guilt because they show us the difference. Here's the difference. It's not whether or not we're guilty. It's not the super guilty people who are condemned to hell and the not quite so guilty people who can go to heaven. It's not those, those of us who have committed felonies before God are condemned to hell, but, but maybe some other people who only have misdemeanor guilt before God get to go to heaven. Because Peter and Judas are kind of equally guilty, if you think about it. I don't want to lessen Judas's sin. He betrayed the Lord Jesus. He sold out his friend. But, but man, Peter is no lightweight when it comes to guilt. The difference is, what do we do with the guilt that we have? And when we look at the Sanhedrin and Judas, they're going to show us how not to, uh, to react toward our guilt. Because they're the kind of people who can't be saved. Let's read our passage. Matthew 27, the first 10 verses. This is the New American Standard Bible on the screen. Now when morning came... All the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed Jesus, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, what is that to us? See to that yourself. Verse 5, and Judas threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed, and he went away and hanged himself. The chief priests took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together, and with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers or for foreigners. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. And then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the 30 pieces of silver and the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. I want to start this morning by looking at the religious leaders and how they dealt with their guilt. They are the Sanhedrin. The chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they, they're a great example of someone who's really good at convincing themselves and others that they don't have any guilt. You want to know how they dealt with their guilt? They denied they had any. They denied they were guilty, or they denied they had enough guilt that they can't just sort of deal with it on their own. That's how they dealt with their guilt. Really, this is the biggest problem the religious leaders had. It's the biggest problem Jesus had with these guys. That's why earlier in this book, after these guys asked Jesus, hey, Jesus, why do you hang out with sinners all the time? Here's, here was Jesus' answer. He said, folks who are healthy don't need a physician. Those who are sick do. That's why I came. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, when Jesus said that, he wasn't telling these guys, I don't need to hang out with you guys because you're not sick. You're, you're, you're not guilty. It's not what he was saying. Jesus has his tongue firmly planted in his cheek. 
And he's speaking to this truth. No one seeks medical attention until they understand they're sick. Nobody heads toward a savior until they understand they're a sinner. And the biggest problem with the religious leaders is they didn't think they were guilty. These are the people who want to stand before God and declare not guilty. They're a good example of somebody who thinks because they keep some religious minutiae, they toe the letter of the law in certain areas of their lives, but they're not guilty. Here's where we see this. The first couple of verses in chapter 27 say this. When it was early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people, they plotted again against Jesus to execute him. And they tied him up and they led him away and handed him over to Pilate. That's not just a summary statement of what went on the night before or through that night before. We talked last week about what a sham of a mockery of justice this trial was. So many things were illegal. The Sanhedrin wasn't supposed to meet during a religious festival, and they did. They weren't supposed to meet at night. A trial wasn't supposed to be private. You weren't supposed to call witnesses at night. You remember, uh, a condemned person was not supposed to be condemned in just one day, right? So here's what these guys do. The previous night, at some point, they all decide to execute Jesus. But they know the rules. So here's what they do. They wait. And at first light, when by their way of counting days, a new day has started, they quickly open the doors and call to session the Sanhedrin, and they call it a public hearing, and they convict Jesus. Now they can say, well, that took two days. And that wasn't at night. And that wasn't private. We are not guilty, right? Never mind that they have like thrown a grenade under the spirit of the law. They think they've towed the letter of the law in a way that makes them not guilty. So you can't tell me anything we've done here is wrong. Look at the way I did this. We're going to talk about Judas's guilt in a minute. But there's another way we see these guys uh, thinking they're operating in a way that makes them not guilty when they're obviously extremely guilty. Judas um, changes his mind. Judas, uh, he tries to bring the money that he got, the bribe he got from him back, and they won't accept it. So Judas, as we read, he goes to the temple, he throws the money into the sanctuary. Well, now these religious leaders, they have to do something with the money. In verses 6 and 7, we read this. The chief priest took the silver and said, well, I mean, it wouldn't be right for us to put this kind of money into the church, church, into the temple treasury. That'd be wrong. This is blood money. It's dirty money. So we're going to do something good with this money. We'll buy the potter's field, which by the way, is just a field with the kind of clay you can do ceramics with. We're going to do something charitable. We'll buy this field and we'll let Gentiles have a, that aren't from here, who die here, have a place to be buried. Here's what's going on there. Here's how they're covering up obvious guilt. They admit, what kind of money does Judas throw in there, according to their own admission? This is blood money. We can't put this in the temple treasury. This is dirty money. Remind me where Judas got that money. 
<laughs> Who paid the dirty money? They did. But they think as long as we do something good with it, we're not guilty. So they take unclean money, they use it to buy an unclean place to bury unclean people. And they here they've towed sort of the line of the letter of the law in certain ways that they can point to and say, see, look at the good I've done. I figured out a way to make this all seem right. I am not guilty. That's why they're the first kind of person who can't be saved. You know the first kind of person who can't be saved? Someone who does not admit they have guilt. Now, Judas is different. Judas is different from the the religious leaders in that he suddenly sees his guilt very clearly. Judas' problem is not that, that he thinks he hasn't done anything wrong. Matthew tells us something interesting here. Now, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus had been condemned, saw that Jesus had been condemned, Somehow, Judas is close enough to these proceedings that apparently he can see Jesus being led away, bound, and he can tell where they are leading him to and where this is headed. He sees this with his own eyes, and that does something inside of Judas. This translation says that he regretted what he had done. The NIV says he was seized with uh, regret or guilt or something like that. I like that translation. That's what happens. If your Bible says that Judas repented, I just want you to know that's a very unfortunate translation of the Greek word here. He didn't repent in our... His problem is he didn't repent. More on that in a minute. But Judas sees Jesus heading toward the cross and he is seized with remorse and guilt. He knows he's guilty. Why does that happen inside of Judas all of a sudden? Well, we're not told. I'm studying for this. I read two pretty good guesses, and I'll share them with you. You can pick one if you want. One idea is that Judas never thought the authorities would go that far. I mean, crucifixion was for the worst of the worst. And Jesus had done plenty of good and had been plenty popular. So maybe Judas just never thought it would go that far. And when he sees Jesus being led away, he just goes, oh no, I didn't think they'd do that. Maybe that's it. The other idea is that Judas, Judas had seen Jesus demonstrate incredible power over nature, over disease, over death, right? The other idea is that maybe Judas was forcing Jesus' hand here. He'll never allow himself to be killed. Maybe maybe I can force Jesus to begin the kingdom the way I want him to begin the kingdom. And then when he sees him being led away, he's like, oh no. Whatever the reason, by the way, if that's the truth, he won't be the last person who ever tried to coerce God into doing what, what he wanted. Whatever the reason, 
Judas is, is gripped by his own guilt and regret. Here's a place where I see him not unlike Peter. If you glance up at the end of verse 26, excuse me, at the end of chapter 26, verse 75, the last thing in, in, chapter, in the previous chapter is that Peter went out and wept bitterly. The third time, Peter denies Christ. The rooster crows. And Peter feels exactly like Judas does right here. He is seized with remorse. And he runs out of that courtyard and weeps and cries. He breaks down. Do you see how Judas and Peter right now are in the same spot? They are. So what makes the difference? Why is Peter judged as not guilty and Judas has been in hell for like 2,000 years. It can't be the size of their guilt. It just can't. It's their response. You know what Judas does with his guilt? Something pretty common. First, he just tries to make up for it himself. He knows he's guilty. He tries to fix it. He tries to undo it. Look right here, he regretted what he has done. So what does he do? He goes and gives the money back to the chief priests and the elders. Here, I changed my mind. I don't want the bribe anymore. They won't take the money back. He tries something else. He changes his testimony, or at least he enters new testimony. This is supposed to be a legal proceeding, right? He offers new testimony, and he says, hey, I'm the sinner, and the one I've betrayed is, what's that word right there? Innocent. Jesus is innocent. There's new testimony. Maybe he thinks Jesus' case will get thrown out of court, or he'll get a new trial. He, tries to he knows he's guilty, and he tries to undo it. I'm going to take the money back, and I'm going to tell him that Jesus is innocent. That does no good. Because the chief priests say to him, what is that to us? You take care of that yourself. You hear what they're saying right there? They don't care that Jesus is innocent. They don't care that Judas is guilty. So Judas says, guys, help me here. I've messed up. I'm the guilty one. He's innocent. He says, they say, you, what did, we don't care. You take care of that yourself. I think part of Judas has to be going, that's what I'm trying to do. Right? I'm trying to take care of this myself. I can't. I brought the money back. You won't take it. I've changed my testimony. You don't care. You're the religious leaders. Help me with my guilt. And they say, you go take care of that yourself. Go offer a sacrifice or something. Something else Jesus said about these guys was that they like to tie up heavy loads and place them on men's shoulders, but they themselves won't lift a finger to help them move it. It's exactly what they do right here. Oh, boy, you sinned? Sorry about that. We can't help. Do religious people still do that? See if you try this one on for size. You ever heard of a mortal sin? The big ones? Oh, you've committed a mortal sin. Well, I mean, good luck with that. You're going to have to pay for that. You're going to be in purgatory for a long, long time. 
which is a made-up place, and it's not real. So Judas recognizes his guilt. He tries to undo it. He even takes that money and throws it in the temple. Does he feel any better? No. Because he knows, no matter what I do, this guilt is not going anywhere. I can't do anything to undo my guilt. And you know what? That far, he's exactly right. There is nothing Judas can do to undo his guilt. Now here's where he's wrong. That leads him to lose. He believes because he can't do anything that there is no hope. And that's wrong. And we know at that point, Judas went out and he did what so many people for thousands of years have been doing. When they lose hope, he took his own life. And so Judas is the second kind of person who can't be saved. The first kind of person who can't be saved, I'll go to the next one. Maybe I will. Click me one more time there, Jason. Thanks. The first kind of person who can't be saved is like the religious leaders. Someone who says, I don't have any, why would I need to be saved? I'm not guilty. The second kind of person who can't be saved is someone who thinks he or she can make up for his own guilt. I can do enough. I can undo this. I can fix this. I can uh, do enough religious things. Maybe I can punish myself. Judas is also the third kind of person who can't be saved is someone who just thinks there's no hope for the removal of guilt. I think those are the only kinds of people who can't be saved. As long as I don't admit my guilt, I can't be saved. As long as I think I have to try to make up for my guilt, I can't be saved. And if I believe there is no hope for the removal of my guilt, I can't be saved. We know to be saved first, I have to admit I'm a sinner, I'm guilty. And then I need to go to the cure for my guilt. See, Judas's problem is not that he didn't know he had guilt, but he didn't go to Jesus with his guilt. He didn't go. He went to the religious leaders and they couldn't help him, so he lost all hope. There's not a religious action in this world that can save you from your guilt. The only thing that ever saved anyone from his or her guilt is what Jesus did at the cross paying the penalty our sins deserve. But I want to talk about this from a little different angle. I use this word intentionally, saved. You know, in the Bible, when we read the word saved, it's not always talking about eternal salvation or justification before God. We need to be saved from lots of things sometimes. Right? If I step out in front of a car out here on Broadway, I might need to be saved before that car hits me. Right? And whether I'm saved from that car, does that determine whether or not I go to hell or go to heaven? No. What I do with Jesus is what determines that. But there are lots of things we need to be saved from. 
as a Christian, as a believing person, if you're redeemed, if you're justified before God, you ever lived through a relationship that wasn't saved? You ever have a relationship that was so broken that it just wasn't salvaged and you don't have it anymore? Anybody? The cure, the cure is usually the same. God gave a remedy for broken relationships. Number one right up here, the kind of person who can't be saved is someone who refuses to admit guilt. If I come to you and admit my guilt, what am I doing? What would you call that? What's the churchy word for telling someone what they've done that's wrong? That's confession. If I, I can't be saved until I confess my guilt. My relationship with God cannot be redeemed until I admit my guilt, until I confess. You know, my relationship with you is not altogether different. If I have sinned against you, if I have hurt you, to the point where our relationship is so jammed up that it's not going to get better. Do you know what it's going to take for this relationship to be saved? First, my confession. And second, my repentance. And probably third, your forgiveness. See, this stuff is still messing up our lives and our relationships even as saved people. Even if I have believed on the Lord Jesus for my eternal salvation, even if my, my relationship with God will ultimately be redeemed, restored, and be eternal, that doesn't mean I still don't need to confess my guilt and repent of my sin. So the gospel is not just something I believe in once and move on. It's a lifestyle. I think the reason we do, number one, the reason we spend a lifetime defending ourselves against guilt, we feel like it shows weakness to admit when we're wrong. We grow up in homes where nobody is wrong. We see modeled because most of us were raised by like humans instead of being raised by wolves, which in some case might have been better. But and so what we see is people being excellent at defending against accusations of their guilt. We become like the religious leaders. No, 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 I'm not guilty. Let me tell you why I behave the way I behave. See, this happened and then I couldn't help that. And you can't tell me that was wrong because I threaded the needle right here and that wasn't really wrong and I would right? Then we find usually the accuser, the other person that, that my relationship is jammed up. And if I build a nice long list of terrible things they've done, then it doesn't matter whether or not I have some guilt as long as I can convince myself they have more. It's easy to admit I don't have guilt if I can just convince myself someone else has more. And it goes down like this. Yes, I might have sexual sin. 
I might look at stuff that I really shouldn't look at. I might, you know, be involved or mess around with somebody that um, I, I am not married to or I'm not married at all. But, I mean, at least it's not homosexual. I mean, those are the people that are, I'm a little man. So I can feel better about myself and convince myself there's no real, this is it's natural. I can't help it. If that doesn't make you uncomfortable enough, try this one. Let's say, yes, I, I work too much. Yes, I, I have allowed my desire to achieve, to make money, whatever it is. I have, I have allowed that to get in the way of the way I relate to my spouse, my children, my church, and my God. But at least I'm not like those lazy people. I mean, those are the ones that, oh, they're all entitled and they just think everything should be given to them and I'm not at all like those people. We could do this all day. It's easy to see in the religious leaders. It's harder to see in me. And God has instituted means for fixing sin. And our role is confession and repentance. Like that's our role with him, but it's still our role. Even when I've got things straightened out with him. So the kind of person who can't be saved eternally and the kind of person who can't be saved like in a relationship it's the same thing somebody who won't admit his or her guilt won't confess or just won't repent won't go and won't change that's Judas he won't like he's he knows he's guilty but he won't go to Jesus that's who he sinned against So what do we do? What do we do with our guilt? How many of you have ever struggled with this? You can raise your hand uh, physically or just in your brain. You can just put your hand up here. How many of you, even though you're saved, you're forgiven, you still struggle with feeling guilty and you can't shake the guilt of your past sin? Anybody? Here's what we do with our guilt. I don't want to just leave you with the negative example of, of Judas and the religious leaders. We knew they were guilty. The kind of person who can be saved is the person who deals with his or her guilt correctly. Here's how we do this. First and foremost, make sure that your guilt before God is taken care of, and that is only taken care of at the cross of Jesus Christ. The guilt you have that you will carry eternally before God can only be taken care of at the cross. Have you ever told, just believed in your heart, confessed with your mouth that Jesus Christ paid the penalty your sins deserve? That is the only way that your guilt won't be on you when you stand before God. So how do I deal with guilt? That's number one. If you've made it that far, the sins we need to confess 
are all of my sins and I can confess them directly to God. My need to confess my sins does not stop when I become a believer. You know that? When's the last time you confessed a sin to God? And, and not like this. I hear this all the time. People come see me and they're struggling in their relationship. And all the time I hear people say stuff like this. I know I'm not perfect. Right? We all know that. But there's a big difference between recognizing I'm not perfect and confessing a sin. It's much easier to admit, well, I know at some time in my past I've done things that are wrong. It's much more difficult to find the things I do wrong and confess them individually. Confession is seeing my sin the way God sees them. And confession is still important. Do you know why many Christians, many Christians still feel guilty? Because they have not confessed their sins. And God said the way I remove sin guilt is through confession and repentance. Now, I may get to eternity and find my ultimate justification before God is still there, and it is. But that does not lessen my need right now today to take individual sins before the God of the universe and tell him I see this the way you see it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul said something like, I'm not acquitted because I can convince other people I'm not guilty. I'm not, conv- I'm not acquitted if I can convince myself I'm not guilty. It's what God thinks about me and my behavior that matters. Many of us are masters at convincing other people that we're not guilty. But we cannot convince God to change his mind about what he knows. So if I, if I deal with guilt... I want to confess my sins individually to God. God, this was wrong. I see that the way you see it. I want to confess that before you. If I've done number one and I've done number two and I still struggle with feelings of guilt, number three, I want to go to confess toward the people I've sinned against and make any necessary restitution that may matter. If I have stolen, I want to pay it back. If I broke something of someone and I feel terrible about that, maybe I won't feel better until I, you know, replace their hedge trimmer or whatever it was I broke. God fixed my relationship to him when I confessed to him that I was a, that I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. God fixes relationships between people the same way. Sometimes I feel guilty because I haven't gone to someone and said, Troy, I was wrong when I, whatever it is. I'm sure that made you feel rejected, humiliated, whatever. I would really like for you to forgive me for that, but whether you do or not, I need to tell you I recognize that was wrong. Confess your sins one to another. And fourth, if I've done one, two, and three, and I should add repent, I've made, in that confession comes with, I've decided I want to be different than that. 
I want to change and turn from that. I've gotten that far. Now I need to do number four. I want to choose to believe God that I no longer bear guilt. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins, and then what else? And to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. If I confess my sins. But if I've confessed my sins, then I need to believe that what God says is true. I am no longer guilty. We have an enemy who wants us to feel guilty when we no longer bear guilt. Romans 8.1 says, There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I've believed on Jesus Christ as my Savior, I've confessed my sins to God, I've confessed my sins to the people I hurt. Step four is, and I've got to take God at his word that I am no longer guilty for that sin. And step five, easier said than done, is I have just got to move on. I cannot live in the regret of those past mistakes. First, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, The one who is in Christ is a new creation. The old has, one more time, the old has gone or passed, and the new has come. Now, if I try to do number five before I do number one, two, and three, it's not going to work. You know why? Because God keeps his word and his promise is he will forgive my sin and clean me up from all my unrighteousness if I confess my sins. So I'm going to stop talking now and invite the musicians to come up and I ask you to just bow your head, close your eyes. And I'm just going to invite you to spend a little time with the Lord if there's something you need to confess to him. If there are sins you have, you have not brought to him for a long time, I would just invite you to say, God, here's, here's my list. This stuff is wrong. It's sin. And I want to confess it to you. Spend a little time in confession with your Lord. Now I want to challenge you, encourage you to simply make this request of the Lord. Lord Jesus, would you show me who I need to confess to? Is there someone in your life that you have sinned against that the Lord would lead you to confess? I'm not going to ask you to to do that right now this morning. That's on you and between you and the Lord. But here's what I know. That God keeps his promises. And what he says is best is best. 
And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father God, I thank you for for hearing our confessions. Thank you that we have a great high priest that we can go straight to. We can confess straight to God the blood of the Lord Jesus. God, help us to be confessors and repenters, not just defense attorneys. God, if it is me, uh, or if it's someone here who gets uh, confessed too, I pray you'd help us to be forgivers so that we would forgive others the way we have been forgiven. So that we might be a testimony of the gospel to an unbelieving world. We thank you for your faithfulness. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.